You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, and welcome to Saturday Morning Live on Voice of Islam Radio. You're joined by me, Noshir Zafra, your host this morning. I'm joined today by Malik the Green in the studio and Hamad Khan uh, calling in remotely. And today we're going to be having a show... Uh, talking a little bit about the importance of representation in politics and our wider society. We're going to have a look at some of the news that's been coming out of Westminster and across the political spectrum in the last week or so. And we'd just like to begin a discussion with our listeners and our audiences and discuss some of the events that have taken place. But first Mm. of all, uh, let me welcome my co-host today, uh, The Green. Um, It's good to be back in the studio after quite a few weeks out. Um, the weather is a little bit miserable today, but the studio is looking nice and lively. The atmosphere is nice and cheery. So looking forward to a good two hours of uh, news and uh, you know education and uh, having a having a good chat, inshallah. And good morning, Hamad. How are you today? Good morning, guys. I'm I'm very well. Thanks for um, having me online. Apologies, I can't be in the studio, but yeah, uh, quite an important topic, I think, and um, it'll be good to discuss. So looking forward to it. Fantastic. So I think we've got quite a few things to discuss this morning. So we'll kick off with the cream. Do you want to share your first news story with us, please? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so so um, quite a poignant one. And this is one about um, COP twenty seven. So this year's uh, COP twenty seven climate change conference is taking place in Egypt this year. Um, COP are referring to conference of the parties, and this is the twenty seventh annual UN meeting on climate. It's going to take place in Sharm el Sheikh from the sixth to the eighteenth of November. It's interesting. I remember the last time we spoke about COP twenty six last year it was quite um it's quite a deep topic. I think as we spoke on the full show about this, and you know I haven't really seen much news coverage of um COP twenty seven this time round. Maybe perhaps there's more pressing matters going on in the world right now: cost of living crisis, the political climate of the world, the instability that is uh, inherent in the system. But um, it's interesting. I kind of just stumbled across this really, and I was quite surprised uh, considering the uh, the impact it had last year. But anyway, the COP27 um, is happening this year in Egypt. Um, global temperatures have risen 1.1 degrees and heading towards uh, 1.5 degrees, according to the UN climate scientists. And um, apparently, if uh, temperatures rise to around 1.7, 1.8 degrees, then a par- half of the world's population could be exposed to life-threatening heat and humidity. And so 194 countries signed the Paris Agreement in 2015 to um, pursue efforts to reduce and keep it below uh, 1.5 degrees, which is working so far. But of course, you know, we need to review policies and review decisions being made across the world um, annually. An interesting point as well about COP27 is that Rishi Sunak was originally meant to, uh, originally said he would not attend. But perhaps due to certain pressures and, um, you know, the the public backlash against it, he then reversed his decision and is now planning on attending. So um, whether it's a good thing, a bad thing, whether time away from the UK and the current instability in the UK is is a good thing or a bad thing, I guess time will tell. But... um, yeah, let's hope this this year's conference goes well. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think there was a huge fanfare last year for COP twenty six, and I guess that's to be expected at least here in the UK because we were hosting it. Um, uh, and naturally, just with as with any other country, you, you wouldn't necessarily expect uh, a yearly event to gain quite so much media coverage if if it's taking place abroad. However, uh, I do feel that. There were a lot of big promises made last year. There was all this fanfare, uh, and, and I know politically a lot of things have happened um, since, since uh, last year, but 
but but it is a little bit concerning that the government of of our country and probably many others probably is not taking the this risk of climate change and the potentially irreversible effects it's going to have as seriously as they ought to think uh, we've discussed the issues of climate change on this show many many times in the past um, and uh, obviously uh, we're not going to delve too much into that right now uh, because I'm sure our listeners also have have their various opinions on this topic but from my perspective I think it would have been nice if we had some more concrete actions and less sound bites uh, coming from our politicians what are your thoughts Mud? yeah I mean it is interesting because uh, the the justification that they gave was, uh, well, I think it was Jacob Rees-Mogg, what character anyway, I'm not going to get into him anyway, but his comment was um, that it, it's far better for the Prime Minister to be um, staying within the country to sort issues out while than spending £2,000 um, a night on Sharm el-Sheikh uh, at this conference. And I'm thinking, well, first of all, the issue is with Within, within our country is to do with um, the people in political power. So it doesn't matter where he is. What matters is that it just needs to be sorted out in certain ways. I do think, however, just as a critical voice, these COP conferences are about more, they're more about fanfare than much else. It is about raising awareness and public consciousness on issues. Um, I don't think they've necessarily galvanized important momentum momentum um, towards um, climate change agreements. It, it, yeah, it, it is about raising awareness. I, um, I, I just think that the issue of Rishi Sunak not going there, it's somewhat valid. I mean, you, we all know what kind of rubbish this country is in right now and how much it um, needs focus on but um yeah it's it's two ways i'm at two minds about it i because i i know that this conference these cop conferences they're more about fanfare than anything else so i don't necessarily expect much action to come out of it either way yeah i think it, it uh, you've probably summed it up quite well there in in terms of there there's a lot of talk and a lot of showboating but there's not very much in 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 ways of, of tangible action. But I think we'll leave that story there. And Hamad, shall we move on to your next story then? Yeah, talking about another man in a lot of trouble, Elon Musk. Um, he finally went through with his Twitter business deal. Um, I think uh, last week he decided to show up to headquarters with a sink in his hand. As a joke, they let that sink in. Um, and he's now actually got acquisition of Twitter and he's made um, headlines all over the world for various... Um, comments, ideas, and plans about moving um, Twitter forward. Uh, first of all, there's just been a slash in the company's workforce, and the firm is losing apparently £3.5 million a day, which is quite extraordinary. But this whole idea, this whole philosophy of uh, you know, this purchase and the sort of modifications that Elon wants to do with Twitter, another thing is spending $8 um, dollars a month for verification. It's this idea that he thinks that Twitter is this public... Um, Forum. He says it's a town square. That was his words. And this idea that we need to protect this and cherish this idea of free speech, um, go against deplatforming, allow everyone to speak and vocalize every view, um, and prevent the formation of echo chambers, which I don't necessarily agree with. And um, one of those ways is to actually ensure verification is done with a monetary trail. So if you're asking people to subscribe, 
um, by paying $8 a month um, for your verification, it ensures that you're not a bot. And we know that bots were quite a huge issue. I mean, they played a huge role, whether you believe to what degree that influenced the US election or it didn't, but we knew there, there was an existence of Russian bots, particularly on Facebook, particularly on um, Twitter, about disinformation uh, campaigns. You know, bots are just, you know, a huge issue about validating information and fueling conspiracy theories and how they've used by far right, um, most, most of the time far right, but also far, far left um, ideologies just to spread misinformation and spread fear and panic. So I, I understand his intention and I understand his um, sort of idea. It is just interesting then to see, for example, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, um, AOC, she, she's a um, US senator, congressman, congresswoman. And she said, well, she got into a spat with Elon Twitter on Twitter, and apparently her Twitter was blanked and after a day of that happening. And so there is this question about how free is Twitter TM underneath uh, Elon Musk's trademark going to be? Is it going to remain free or is it just going to be, I guess, well, a lot of people are claiming that they're going to leave. There's now arguments that the new platform should take its place. But it's just, again, this idea, and we've talked about it a lot of the time on this show, about how can you regulate free speech? Should it be regulated? And is there something that's problematic about Silicon Valley billionaires to come in and take ownership and monopoly of our tech companies? I think it is. But I'd love to hear your thoughts about the whole thing, Noshi and the Green. Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting one. I was listening to, to this story on the radio uh, while I was driving in this morning. And one of the things that caught my interest, actually, is Elon Musk has made a huge, huge point about this freedom of speech topic. Yet all of the employees he's firing, it's estimated half the work, workforce is being fired and not just being given a notice, they're being kicked out the door with immediate effect, which not only breaches local California legislation, but also federal United States laws regarding employment. Now, those employees who are being kicked out are being censored, so they're not allowed to talk to the press about their experience of, of losing their jobs. Now, I don't know about anyone else in this room, but I feel like that's a major breach of freedom of speech, isn't it? So I'm, I'm not necessarily wanting to, to delve too much into this one, but I would say people like Elon Musk seem to, to pick their words uh, and pick their causes very selectively for when it benefits them, but then choose to deny them when it doesn't. Thoughts, gents? Um, I think you might have already seen as well, uh, a lot of people, are a lot of Twitter, ex-Twitter employees um, are coming to Twitter themselves and they're actually tweeting about how they've been let off um, about no notice, no Slack, no, not even an email. They've just been remotely logged out and uh, now they don't have employment. And these are people who were software engineers or even had very, very good positions within Twitter. So that definitely has potential breaches which are not allowed. And I think a lot of people are being advised to get lawyered lawyered up and uh, actually sue Twitter and Elon Musk for it. Yeah, there, there, there's always going to be the inevitable class action suit coming. And I'm sure that's going to create a huge media furor, but we'll just keep an eye on this one, I guess, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Again, two major questions being raised here. One of the rights to employees and, you know, all this uh, employer kind of uh, rules and regulations and so on and so forth and how Elon is skirting his way around, I suppose. And second, consumer impartiality. 
and uh, privacy. Um, you know, is Elon essentially now the head of Twitter? Can he do whatever he wants? Or does he have to abide by the basic rules of the company that he now owns? So that's the two very good questions, I think, being raised here. Yeah, so no, that that has been a really interesting story. Thanks for that, Hamad. So moving on, uh, story I'm going to bring for you. I'm sure uh, everyone has sort of been paying focus to what's going on in our country here recently as well, particularly homeowners. And so the Bank of England has imposed its biggest hike uh, to base rates in three decades. So on Thursday, the uh, the governor of the Bank of England announced that the Bank of England interest rate is going up from 2.25% to 3%. Now, for those of our listeners who perhaps are not too clued up on, on how this may or may not impact them, the, the Bank of England's uh, interest rate really does have, have a knock-on effect into everyday life in very much every aspect you can think of. So, for example, if you want to take a loan or you want to use a credit card or you want to buy a house, for example, that's the that's the main one everyone's talking about at the moment. The rate that your uh, lending provider is going to give you is going to be influenced by that because the money that those lending providers have to borrow cannot come cheaper than that interest rate that the Bank of England is charging because if you imagine at every point there's a middleman everyone wants to take their little cut of the pie so if the bank of england charges three percent it moves up a little by little by little and so it's not uncommon for people being offered mortgages at 10 percent interest at this point whereas just a year ago uh, i know full well of of people um who, who were closing their deals at just under two percent and and you may be thinking oh but that's it doesn't sound like a huge difference this could double or, or possibly even triple the overall value of the loan that someone has to pay back over 25, 30 years on their house. So it is having a significant effect. Um, and of course, uh, that means uh, monthly payments are, are going up in corresponding amounts. So people have bought their homes for their families, for themselves, uh, and they're finding that they're now in a position that potentially they won't be able to continue to afford the, the cost of keeping up with those payments. So I understand there's a reason why why they're doing that. We we've been hit by something that that economists call stagflation. It's a, co- a compound word for stagnation and inflation, um, sort of referring to to the fact that that buyers in general are slowing down in their purchases and 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 the way sort of modern economies work very much relies on the movement of money, and if if that stagnation is occurring and we've got inflation at the moment, that is very much two problems from opposite ends but when they come uh, to meet each other it's very very difficult to get out of this issue because ordinarily inflation can can be supposedly an okay thing if people are moving their money around so if we look for example uh, towards the early 2000s sort of the Tony Blair era interest rates were considerably higher than they are now but people were spending money and generally we were considered to be in a boom pre-2008 so so money was moving people generally were doing quite well and yes of course prices increase year on year but because money was moving, people were moving up the ladder, people didn't really feel a strain as a result. However, due to numerous effects uh, over over recent years, and argue, I think we don't want to get into a philosophical discussion about economics on this show this morning, uh, but depending on, on your viewpoint, things really either haven't improved since 2008, or potentially that double-dip recession in the middle of the 2010s, or whether it's COVID, whatever your personal viewpoint on, on this economic situation, whatever the drivers are, people really are feeling the pinch. Uh, a lot of industries slowed down, people lost their jobs or were asked to take pay cuts or or, or denied uh, increases in their wages. 
meanwhile due to other outside effects as well such as for example we've now obviously got uh, uh, a military conflict in Eastern Europe uh, we've got all sorts of other uh, geopolitical issues around the world as well um, we see that that is having an impact on things like trade, logistics, prices of oil and You've so on You've been placed on hold, please wait and I think that was Hamad's uh, telephone there so apologies about that um, so due, due to these effects we are seeing uh, that we are in a very difficult position and what the Bank of England can do by raising interest rates is encourage people to save um, and by inc- encouraging people to save supposedly that can move people away from this issue but it is a very precarious situation so does this worry you? Do you think we're going to see interest rates continue to raise further or do we have potentially a long way uh to, to recovery, but this is the first good step. What are your thoughts, gents? Well, what you said, I'm I'm no expert in economics. I don't claim to be, and as a student, you know, I'm not I'm not really buying a house at the moment. Um, but like I said, as a student, the way this impacts me and the way I view it is it is the fact that the most obvious effect is that, for example, my student loan. I was having a look at the interest rate and so on and so forth, and I believe it was saying something along the lines of twelve and a half percent interest. Which is incredible because they take the I think the Bank of England rate and add about six and a half percent or some some crazy amount to it, um, and so I was looking at how that would affect my uh, loan value and how that would increase in the future, and ended up being something ridiculous, like one hundred and forty thousand pounds of debt um, due to me being in, for example, university for five five years or so, and so that really that impact hasn't hit me yet, but even thinking about in the future, it kind of does it has a mental burden to you, knowing that you know. I'm not having to pay for my university right now, but in the future, what's that going to cost me? What does that mean in terms of my career? In fact, that might influence my career choices. I know fellow peers who are not taking a year out to do an interlayer bachelor's, for example, just because they're aware of the increased debt it will mean and how that increased debt is going to affect them in the future. And so, you know, this is really something that people are having, you know, students even in my age, people who aren't buying houses, who aren't necessarily paying rent, who don't necessarily have families, and so might not be quite that concerned by the cost of living crisis making them homeless or so and so forth. But this is having a real impact on their education. And people are, are genuinely not getting degrees and so on and so forth simply because of the impact that might have on their future careers and their future income and so on and so forth. So that is one really, one effect of it that I've personally seen, for example. So yeah, so education student loans is one of the issues that's arising from this. And I actually was considering to buy a house not too long ago. And I had to halt my plans, plans simply because of this reason, the increase in the interest rates and the mortgage prices. In terms of do we know how long to wait now? I don't know how long to wait. I have to keep checking when, when there's changes and stuff like that. Neither do we know of a certain plan which is going to reverse the actions that we're currently seeing. Um, all Rishi Sunak said was that uh, this is going to be a difficult moment for a lot of families in the UK and uh, that we have to wait this out. But the bank, I believe, insisted that this is not as worse as it could have been and that they've tried as much as they can. So potentially what that could mean is that things could get worse. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Just like you, Rohan, I've I've been considering sort of a home purchase for, for some time. Things were looking like maybe we're getting a bit closer, but I think now strategies for a lot of people are probably going to have to change. So particularly for first-time buyers, there were certain enticing sort of opportunities that were government-backed plans, such as, for example, 5% mortgages, uh, sort of first-time buyer programs. I think now, 
for for some people at least, I think I'm definitely considering it. There are also warnings that there might be a so-called correction in house prices, in, in other terms, a reduction in house prices. Uh, over the last couple of years, on average, house prices in the UK have gone up by 25%. And so uh, c- certain economists, including certain big banks, are predicting that we could see drops of between 10 and 40% in 2023. And so... Of course, while that may be very, very painful for homeowners, because if you consider the vast majority of their net worth is tied into the value of the the property they live in, um, for first-time buyers, uh, the uh, decrease in house prices may well uh, sort of cancel out to some extent these increased rates. But, Rahan, have you got another story for us? Yes, I do. So, currently, we have the elections taking place, the midterm elections in the US. And there was an interesting thing that suddenly came out, uh, I saw on social media. And uh, it simply, well, the question was that, why is slavery being discussed in these midterm elections? So I was pretty surprised. So I clicked on it and I read it. And uh, what I found out that it's been 157 years, so since US banned the slavery system that it had, um, and in the definition of this is where one person is legally owned by another person. But there was that ban that they put on slavery was not a complete ban um, and it had exemptions. Now, what's being discussed in these midterm elections in five states, which is Alabama, Louisiana, Oregon, Tennessee and Vermont, is to get rid of this exemption as well. So what this exemption meant is that slavery, in a sense, so the first making someone work for you, forcefully, it's still possible as a punishment to a person, meaning that people who are convicted, who are inmates in prison, are still forced to work at either unpaid work or very, very low prices. And if I was to give you an example of how this worked is that there was an inmate called Curtis Ray Davis and uh, who was in prison for 25 years. Note that he did not actually commit the crime and he was pardoned recently, so he spent 25 years for no reason. And he says that they made me work for these 25 years, but within those 25 years, I was only paid $124 for all the work that I did, which is literally very, very low. He says it's about, it was less than 20 cents per hour. And uh, you notice that the reason why this exemption was made initially is that people of a black background were still put into prison or there were um, these uh, institutions set up where convicted black people would be sent to so they would continue carrying the work and the jobs that were being done on slave farms and plantations, etc. And there's certain prisons in America that are still named as a nickname after those plantations simply because a lot of the slaves went to those places. So I think this is also a very, very important point. And uh, I know there's often celebrations of how US ended slavery 157 years ago. But things like these are forgotten and they still exist to this day um, where people who are even descendants of slaves are having to do work in the same way as they did. So we did not completely eradicate it. And uh, this is now being discussed, as I mentioned, in some of the states for the midterm elections. Yeah, it's it's quite a tragic story, that one, because I think you're right. They have got quite an uncomfortable history not just in, in the US, but of course across uh, Western Europe um, in terms of the, the treatment of uh, the these African uh, people. Um, and 
we see a lot of things in the news, whether that be things like George Floyd's killing a couple of years ago, or numerous other incidents of of black people in America or being treated unfairly, not just uh, by f- other fellow citizens, but actually being actively uh, discriminated against by the same systems that are designed theoretically to protect them, such as the policing system, the schooling system, uh, the uh, sort of prison system, right? Um, and so, of course, I think that's possibly an entire show's worth of conversation right there. But you're, you're very right. Slavery may well have been abolished over a century and a half ago, uh, uh, officially, but in, in many ways, I think the shadows uh, still remain to some extent. Hamad, have you got any uh, thoughts on this story? I mean, like you guys said, the African-American experience is always about the wider denial of America being built on original sin. And there's always going to be traces like like this about its um, horrific racial past that's built upon slavery. I mean, even about whether it's particular Confederate um, flags that are being thrown around in southern states, some statues, it's this, this pain of having to argue for your existence that I think is just a continuous sort of struggle that people are living with within America. So, I mean, it, for me, it's just, you know, there's not much else to say about it, and it's just abhorrent and disgusting for it to happen continually. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely one that I think uh, is going to cause quite an uncomfortable conversation uh, amongst people in America to be having with themselves. And I think while while in official terms they may have made progress, I think practically there are long strides still yet to be made. Um, so with that, I think we'll close up the news section. It's half past ten. We're just going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss a couple of the stories from uh, uh, Westminster that have taken place in the last week. You're listening to Saturday Morning Live on Voice of Islam Radio. Tzadakla. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. The firm one, the one with extreme power, which is both complete and unwavering. Surely it is Allah Himself who is the great sustainer, the powerful, the strong. God is the light of the heavens and the earth. Every light that is visible on the heights or in the valleys, whether in souls or in bodies, whether personal or impersonal, whether apparent or hidden, whether in the mind or outside it, is a bounty of His grace. This is an indication that the general grace of the Lord of the worlds envelops everything and nothing is deprived of that grace. He is the source of all grace, the ultimate cause of all lights and the fountainhead of all mercies. His being is the support of the universe and is the refuge of all high and low. He it is who brought everything out of the darkness of nothingness and bestowed upon everything the mantle of being. No other being than him is in himself present and eternal or is not the recipient of his grace. Earth and heaven, man and animals, stones and trees, souls and bodies, 
have all come into existence by His grace. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. The real purpose of all the external and internal limbs and faculties that have been bestowed on man is understanding and worship and love of God. That is why, despite a thousand occupations, man does not find his true well-being except in God Almighty. Having acquired great wealth or achieved high office or having become a great merchant or having acquired governing authority or become a great philosopher, he departs in the end from these worldly involvements with a sense of frustration. His heart rebukes him all the time about his deep concern with the world and his conscience never approves his wiles and deceits and wrongful actions. When he takes stock of man's faculties and powers to discover his highest capacity, we find that he is invested with the faculty of seeking after God so much that he desires that he should become so devoted to God's love that he should have nothing of his own and that everything should become God's. He shares his natural needs like food and drink and rest. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live on Voice of Islam. You're joined by me, your host Noshir Zafar, and with me in the studio, I've still got the cream, but we've also been joined by Rahana Lachima and on the phones we've got Hamad Khan. So moving on to our next story, uh, really we wanted to talk a little bit about I'm sure some of our listeners who've been following the news this week have seen a lot of mention of our Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, uh, for, I would say, probably two or three different stories this week, actually. It started off with the data protection issues, and we've slowly moved towards uh, uh, an issue with the housing and catering of of migrants who are currently being kept in detention centres down in Kent. Um, Let's start with the former one, actually, because I think this one's quite interesting um, from my perspective. So I guess just to recap what the story was is the Home Secretary has been found to have used her personal email address uh, for storing and sending uh, official and secret uh, government documents. Now, in some cases, she's argued that those were documents relating to to messaging that was going to be announced imminently after its sending, um, for which it appears she's got a slap on the wrist, been told not to do it again. However, when once this investigation took place, for, for the most recent offence, it was found she had done it six times. So six offences in six weeks. Now, the reason I find this somewhat concerning is these are the people who represent the interests of of our country, of the citizens, of the people. Now, one of the, the key roles of, of a Home Secretary is actually the national security of, of the interior of the United Kingdom, right? So she works along with security services such as the police or, for example, MI5 in terms of reducing the threat of, of crime but also terrorism, right? Now, I'm I'm not entirely sure what the, the, the legal matters being discussed in these emails were. However, I, I don't think that's entirely relevant. Now, most uh, companies... Uh, and I imagine the government probably is is no different. Um, but any company which has to deal with sensitive information um, 
would have secure mail uh, email facilities uh, that are that have all sorts of measures of security uh, in place. I'm not necessarily a uh, IT security expert, but my understanding is there's things like encryption, things like firewalls, and so on, um, all all designed to prevent uh, people who have no business seeing that information from being able to access it. Now, the idea is that when government ministers and MPs are to email uh, uh, amongst each other, they should be using these email accounts and no others at any point, uh, because what this does is ensures that there's no risk of of this information being leaked out to 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 those parties which which are not privy to it. Um, the risk that I think some people don't necessarily see uh, is that each time these emails have been sent out to a personal email account, so this is on a public domain. I don't know, it could be Gmail, it could be Hotmail, it could be anything, right? However, hackers uh, of any sort could far, far more easily get into one of those personal email accounts. Now, what what some people don't realize is it's not just a case of those emails, it's a case of, well, there might be other personal or national security information on there, or this might well be the means of getting in uh, uh, through a back door into the government infrastructure, thereby potentially uh, opening up many national security interests and secrets uh, up to, to, to third parties who, who may or may not have the best interests of this country at heart. Um, and I guess... What we want to discuss today is how is the Home Secretary still in a job, really? I think not to put too fine a point on it, given that this is quite a serious offence. Um, and the three of us in the studio here, and I know, Hamad, you also work in, in the healthcare sector. Um, I think we've all got our own experiences of, of sort of ensuring data security, uh, regardless of lines of work. I'm very happy to, to 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 talk about my experiences as as I'm as I'm a co-host today, um, and we we were just discussing this in the break, um, and we were just thinking, well, what what she's done uh, has very potentially grave implications, um, and yet she's been told, please don't do it again, and she's stayed in in her line of work. Meanwhile, if say for example a doctor was found to have have sent out a patient list onto a personal email account. That's a sackable offence, but not just a sackable offence. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, gents. I'm sure that's a prosecutable offence as well. Um, the cream. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so as I was saying in the break, um, you know, I don't know too much about public servants and you know the Official Secrets Act and so on and so forth. But I can relate in my own way because as medical students, we are again very much so informed about the GMC and the GMC guidelines and GMC um, ethical guidance and so on and so forth. And confidentiality is a big, big part of it. You know, it's a big part of the training that we go through every year. And so just having a look at the, the guidelines specifically on confidentiality and good medical practice as defined by the GMC is that patients have a right to expect that their personal information will be held in confidence by the doctor. And there's a, you know, a full 24-page document on exactly what that means, exactly how confidentiality is supposed to be maintained by medical professionals. And actually, the reason why this is so uh, important is because a few weeks back, I remember a colleague of mine, a peer of mine in medical school, um, he was absolutely devastated because he lost his uh, bag on the bus. And I had a laptop in, and of course, you know, he was quite annoyed that his laptop was gone, so on and so forth. But more important than that, you know, he realised that there were two patient notebooks in there, which he'd, you know, kind of written down patient information. It was mostly anonymized, but kind of just, just first names, and that's it, really. Um, so you can remember the cases and write them up when he, go, when he went back. 
and he had a, he had a habit of doing so, um, and then tearing out those pages and um, discarding them afterwards. But he realized that if anybody had had found that bag and had realized what was in those notebooks, and you know had reported him to GMC or notified someone, that was immediately a fitness of practice tribunal, and more likely than not, you know, a dismissal from medicine and all future medical practice, simply because that in itself, even though it's not intentional. Even though it's not directly sending any personal information anywhere, it's a simple act of you know misplacing his bag, but that meant that you know his entire career could be jeopardised, and this was again completely intentional and not even relevant uh, really to disclosing personal information, and so you know, luckily he found his bag and, and everything was fine. But that kind of emphasised to me at the time as well the importance of confidentiality and what that means to us, you know, as medical students or as medical professionals. So someone, you know, in one of the highest public offices of this country, doing something, you know, on multiple occasions, and this is the the kind of the reprimand that she gets. It's kind of astonishing to me how this can almost be allowed to happen, really. Um, and just I want the viewers to fully understand, our listeners to understand what we are talking about here. So Nasha's mentioned the she sent six emails to her personal account. Not only that, but over the last day, she's also been investigated for three potential leaks that she's um, done of uh, classified or sensitive information. For example, most recently, um, there was an investigation done against her by the Cabinet Office of Leak Inquiry against uh, the Northern Ireland Brexit leak, where the plans for the Brexit deal for Northern Ireland were shared and uh, they were leaked to the public. So this is something she was investigated for, but they were never able to find out who actually did it. So it's not only that, it's also other things happening in the background as well. And uh, what we are trying to understand as a general public, um, as the um, the population of the UK, is that if the roles were reversed, or if someone like us, who has a average normal day-to-day job, where a lot of these rules apply as well, probably to a less severe extent, what will be the consequences for us? Absolutely. It's it's definitely one to consider. And I just want to sort of take it over to Hamad in terms of what are your thoughts and perhaps from from your life experiences, from from your professional experiences, can you can you tell us a bit more about how that might be dealt with in sort of the places you've got uh, sort of experience of, of being and working in? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, the cream said it as well. I, I have friends in civil service. This is like level one um, sort of training that you get, even as an intern, that you just need to abide by corrected uh, data regulation laws. And like, like you said, it's just um, it's point one. And if you if it's if you go against it, then you're struck off. There's no doubt about it. I just think, I mean, this isn't even the first instance of this particular government um, endangering the country, or you know. Leaking information, for example, you had this trust's phone being um, hacked um, by another uh, national government. I just think that this is a confederacy of incompetence, really. It's, it's quite astonishing how you can get into such le- uh, positions of leadership and fail at something that a 21-year-old coming out of university getting any graduate job, whether it be civil service, whether it be within healthcare, anything that respects data regulation, it, you'll immediately get sacked. And the fact that, you know, it's, she, she's still there is, is quite something. I, I, the irony doesn't escape me, and this is what I was thinking about whilst I was just listening to talking, um, to, uh, of you guys talking, is just that Suella's uh, controversial sort of policies that she's been giving out in the past few weeks uh, as a Home Secretary, 
is predicated on the idea that there's a danger from external forces, external people, migrants, asylum seekers, and therefore we need to x-ray children to verify their ages and we need to keep harsher measures. And the irony is that actually her incompetence and her malpractice is perhaps what's endangering the country right most immediately rather than her fears of other people and stoking xenophobia. So I, I, I just think that's more laughable to me. It's all, yeah, the, the, and it, the most interesting thing and I think the most important thing to think about is why is she kept in power? Why is she kept in her position, which she's demonstrated uh, inability to actually uh, perform at the most basic level? Um, for me, it's just a blatant and um, stark example of, it's not nep nepotism, but it's just um, having connections guard you and um, shield you from very, you know, like you guys said, legal uh, offences that you're making. Yeah, no, it's it's quite funny you bring up uh, Liz Truss's phone hacking. But sort of before I go into that, I, I just want to open it up to our listeners. If anyone is interested to join this conversation, you can call in on 0208 687 7878 or you can tweet to us at Voice of Islam UK and join this conversation as well. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting you bring up Liz Truss's phone hacking because just thinking the two people who who hid that to to improve her chances of gaining the conservative leadership were Boris Johnson and Simon Case so for people who don't know who Simon Case is because he's held a relatively low key although not not completely inconspicuous role as the cabinet secretary um so he is in effect uh, the most senior civil servant in the country now from my experience as a civil servant a few years ago uh, just like you've mentioned, Hamad, one of the very, very key parts of training on day one really was the importance of, of data security um, regarding to, uh, to, to, to the work I was doing. Um, and it was very, very much hammered into to all of us that, that they could not stress enough how important it was um, uh, to, to keep that data confidential. Now, the kind of work I did had absolutely no national security implications whatsoever. However, even then, it's, it's, it's the I think it's that sense of of purpose that from the lowest level to to the highest that if we if we impart this culture of data security, it very much minimizes the risks. Um, now, of course, I, I had access to to certain uh, uh, piece of information that obviously I could never disclose. Um, but the point was that regardless of of what would happen in in the case of uh, of a data breach. Um, I would be held personally liable for, for anything that I had uh, intentionally or non-intentionally disclosed because it was it was my responsibility not just to, of course, not not send that email, which is a deliberate action, but also to, to ensure proactively that I was uh, being uh, cautious of, for example, how I'm uh, transporting data. So, for example, the use of USBs was highly discouraged, right? Because, of course, a USB stick can be very easily misplaced. Instead, always encouraged um, to use official channels uh, for for storing information, but also um, the the idea that being aware not just of who's on the internet but physically around you. So um, when you when you work at home, for example, being cautious that you don't share your work with family members. I know people in the private sector sometimes uh, you come and go, you see. Uh, your your parent, your partner, any other family member working, and you might just oh, what are you doing? But I think 
if 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 there are any other civil servants there they'll know as well it's very very important that their work stays uh confidential just due to the nature of of keeping that information secure um uh, and you go into to the world of private work as well uh, many companies you have clients whether they be whether they be personal uh clients or whether they be a sort of corporate clients and again uh information regarding to to any work uh your organization does for them you're always bound by by ndas i mean i used to work for a coffee shop and i was held by an nda right against any any products that were coming to market a couple months later i was the lowest of the low level right I used to I used to stand in a coffee shop and make cups of coffee right a few years ago, and yet I was bound by an NDA to say you can't tell your customers what's coming two weeks down the road from now, and yet we've got one of the highest members of government who's who's almost certainly bound, not just by NDAs but but probably the the what is it the Official Secrets Act, um, which again you can we, you can search up I think Parliament has a document sort of outlining uh, what the act is but also what does it actually entail. Um, uh, and so you you do wonder what is going on. Uh, yeah, and again, I think you know we have established that what she's done is perhaps wrong. We can argue over the legality of it all day long. We've argued that you know examples of protecting confidentiality exist at the very lowest level of society, and we all have personal experiences with it. I think uh, Rahama mentioned later as well. The question then comes down to what you know Hamad summarised very nicely that which or very poignantly, which is. Why is it one rule for them and why is it one rule for us? Why can we all not have that same equality? Why is there that inequality that is so rampant, it seems, at the highest level of the British government? And not just British government, but across the world, really. Why is it that inequality between the common people, as you can call them, um, between the workers, between the middle class, and why, and between, and then the upper class and the government and so on and so forth? Why is it that they can get away with things that we would punish severely? almost seems like you know almost seems like the lower that you go in society the punishment gets even harsher and harsher and the higher you go the punishment gets even less and less and so that's just a really interesting you know way of looking at it and seeing how how we progress from a society where equality not it's not even not, it's not even about inequality anymore it's about the differing scale of punishments um and you know the ease of punishment and the ease of getting away with things at a high level where you know mistakes will be way more costlier than, for example, a barista you know spilling the secrets of the new pumpkin, pumpkin spice latte coming in two weeks' time. So you know that's just a really interesting way of looking at it. I think. Yeah, no, that was a very good way of putting it, Sakrib. Um, and I wanted to also mention that generally, um, I try to be quite forgiving of people. You know, someone says that okay, I made a mistake, I won't do it again. Let's move on. But I think the issue here is that. This is not something that Swello Home Secretary or any of the politicians are unaware of. They're not clear of the rules. They don't know how things work, right? So this is something which is done purposefully and being uh, being in terms of being complacent or being, like you said, um, privileged in the sense that, oh, I'm not going to get caught, nothing's going to happen, etc., etc. So you do it once, okay, fine. But continuously doing it over a period of time means that you've gotten to a point where you literally don't care. So... At this point, I'm also thinking that is the Home Secretary truly to blame for that? Since everyone now knows and now they're trying to support her and trying to bring her back in because she admitted to the mistake and she resigned under Liz Truss. Now Rishi Sunak has rehired her. So who really is to blame here? And actually, the most recent updates I've heard of this is that the Labour Party um, reported her to the final Financial Conduct Authority and uh, they're also questioning Rishi 
and the Tories in regards to why she's still here and what will it take to get her sacked. And Rishi replied that um, she has re- recognised the mistakes and she's taken accountability for it. And he, this is his words, Rishi's words. He says that she's now getting on with the job, cracking down on crime and defending our borders, something I know the party opposite has no interest in supporting, which is completely irrelevant to what is being discussed and a kind of a trying to get that uh, public or um, backing behind her using controversial t- things that are going on around her at the moment. Yeah, I think... I, I, I know our listeners, um, w- w- they'll all have their, their varying political beliefs and values, right? However, I think it's probably not a stretch to, sh- uh, to, to say, right, that the last few months, if anything, have shown us that the state of British politics today is in a bit of a shambles um, that is very much in disarray, right? We've got, um, regardless of, of your personal opinions of, of our last three prime ministers, right? Wow. Wow. I'm just, just saying that. In the last four months, we've had three prime ministers, right? Uh, regardless of your opinion on, on, on any of these people, surely you have to to accept that there's been a lot that's happened that that not just could have been done better, broke so many rules in the process and these are not rules that were recently introduced designed to trip people up right these are very very long-standing rules and just the kind of rules you'd probably face the equivalent of in in most jobs even outside of government right and so while while i think we've seen many members of government repeating the same sound bites they seem to to add a new one each week um but but at this point surely uh, I'm in no doubt that, that the best option for this country, in my opinion, is a general election because, sure, the people did vote in Boris Johnson in 2019. However, uh, of course, since then, we've had the COVID pandemic, that which, of course, changed many, many things, even on Mr. Johnson's uh, sort of agenda uh, and his manifesto as a result. Um, and then since then, we've had less trusts. Uh, I think the less said, the better. Uh, um, and, and we've now got Mr. Sunak. Um who, as as we're going to talk about in, I guess, the next next segment of our show after after the break, sort of has made to to some extent history for for a positive reason by being the first sort of uh, non-white prime minister of the United Kingdom. Um, but but here, sort of, we want to focus more on, I guess, this isn't meant to be a hit piece by any uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So if anyone does think we're being overly harsh, I mean, we'd be very interested to, to hear your opinions. Please do call in and let us know if, if you think we're being overly harsh, right? Um, but at this point, it's a case of we, we, the country elected Mr. Johnson. Um, his manifesto understandably had to change due to coronavirus. Um, but uh, And he did try to sort of come back to some of those items on his manifesto as, as the pandemic was easing up. But then that doesn't mean that the country agrees with with Liz Truss's vision for the country, and clearly neither did her party because she, she, she was in and out so quickly. Um, and now Mr. Sunak is saying he's going to have to sort of change the, the, the direction of the ship again. So I think what we keep hearing from government is that they've got a mandate, and to an extent that the Conservative Party has a mandate, yes, but the country has not necessarily voted for this brand of conservatism, is, is my point here. Um, and if they truly want the people to, to actually give them their backing, their blessing, then go to general election. What are you afraid of? Because I think if we're talking about scandals like this one here, 
they know full well that they probably don't have too good of a chance here. Um, and from my perspective, it very much just looks like a stalling tactic to see how long they can get away with it. But Hamad, what are your thoughts? I just, <clears throat> I, I really do think, because, you know, I think we're just widely anesthetized. This entire public of this country, we're just so desensitized and numb to whatever show is going on within Westminster that we can't, I think we've just become disavowed and we feel so dispossessed by our public power to actually feel like we can enact any change. And so whatever's happening is just this car crash show. You know, if anyone has been in a car crash, right, you just feel like it's all slow motion and you've just completely lost control at the wheel and you just have to let it happen to you. I think that's what most of us are feeling like. We feel disenchanted by politics. We feel disavowed and dispossessed by power to do anything. And it's just, I think, it it doesn't really matter. I I think people, there was a moment, there was a small spark where people really did say, actually, you know, irrespective of representation and whatever Rishi Sunak represents, and we'll go into that within the next hour, it's not about him, his colour, his race, his ethnicity, it's about democracy and it's about representing views. And when this particular party politics ideology has completely bleached this country of any sense of economic and um, moral and political understandings and compasses, then we need a new change and we need a a new um, political party in power. But it's just, I, I mean, that happened for what? maybe a day, maybe two days, and, you know, people were drumming up supports for a general election, and now we've already conceded that, okay, fine, this is what's happening, this is who we have, and, um, yeah, let's ring the bells for the first Asian um, prime minister of this country who Pakistanis are fighting over his ethnicity, saying he's from Gujranwala, so he's one of us, and Indians are like, no, he's, you know, it's on Diwali, it's our ethnicity, it's all of us. It's just, I, I think we're just so numb to it all that really most people don't care. I'm not sure about what you guys think. That's a really interesting point because there was um, there was a segment on LBC radio, right? And uh, there, there's a morning show, and they were having a discussion on on the very issues of representation in 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 government. Um, and this was when Liz Truss had been uh, elected as prime minister. By and when I say elected, I mean elected by I think it was eighty thousand people. So we're in a country of sixty eight million. 80,000 people gave her the right to be prime minister. Anyway, we'll we'll, we'll sidestep that for a minute. Um, but the discussion was about representation and, of course, Kwasi Kwarteng making uh, history as, as, as the first uh, African ethnic uh, chancellor of the UK. And the question was very simple. Do non-white people approve of such a thing, right? And I just called in and I said, you know what, I don't because I, I, I'm more interested in policies. I'm not interested necessarily in in the racial or or gender backgrounds of any particular politician, I'm much more interested that they represent the best interests of me as a person living in this country, as well as my fellow citizens here. Um, and of course, I think that that call probably aged quite well, given that about 42 days later, Mistrust handed in her resignation. But we're coming up to the break now, and when we come back, we'll be talking a bit more about representation in politics and our wider society. You're listening to Saturday Morning Live on Voice of Islam. We'll be back shortly. (laughs) 
Asatar, the concealer. Asatar denotes that being who is hidden and concealed. He likes the act of covering up faults and covers the weaknesses and failings of his servants. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, that in the hereafter, sheltering man with his mercy, God will ask man if he did such and such deed. Man will confess that yes, he did. God will say, I covered your fault on that day, and I cover your fault again. Such is the nature of the loving God who forgives and covers. However, this certainly does not signify that people should become uncontrolled and have no notion of right and wrong, since forgiveness is assured. God covers up a believer in countless covers. However, each time a believer commits a sin, a cover is torn until there remains no cover. Thus, each believer should always strive to be the one who repents, as through repentance, Allah restores the covers. God likes modesty, and He likes to protect His servants from any potential embarrassment. But when and if a man reaches a stage where he is brazen and does not benefit from God's covering of faults, he is then humiliated. God does not protect the shame of those who are incorrigible, and their most concealed and hidden sins are also revealed. Thus, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, taught us to continuously seek God's protection through the following prayer. O oh Allah, cover my nakedness and alter my fears into peace. O oh Allah, protect me from the dangers that are ahead of me and those that are behind me and those that are to my right and those that are to my left and those that are above me. I come into the refuge of your greatness from the dangers that may seize me from underneath. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, relates that we should reflect these high morals of Allah and inculcate them within our community. We should live in modesty and cover the faults of our women and brothers. Allah has promised to those who cover the faults of other Muslims that He will cover their faults on the Day of Judgment. Related in a hadith, it is said, a believer who sees the failings of his brother but covers them will be granted entrance to paradise by Allah. God enjoins to live with love and affection. When people's secrets are disclosed, enmity increases. Furthermore, when we expose the faults of others, we spread sin and immodesty in society. In a situation where a person's failings are discovered, while the person has repented for their sins and altered their ways, by publicizing their faults, not only do we expose their faults, but we indulge in backbiting. This refrains one from taqwa as well. 
Thus, in order to save the society from disorder and oneself from hell, covering the faults of others is essential. The Holy Quran says, those who love that immorality should spread among believers will have a painful punishment in this world and the hereafter. And Allah knows, and you know not. People of our community should pray for a brother when they notice any failing in him. It is certainly not the teaching of the Holy Quran to notice a failing and spread it as it is a sin. May Allah enable us to put His teaching in practice and thus always partake in a measure of God's trait of being Sattar. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live on Voice of Islam Radio. You're joined by me, Noshir Zafra, your host. And in the studio with me today, I've got Malik Takrim and I've got Rahana Lachima. And on the telephone, uh, we've got Hamad Khan joining us uh, as well. So on to the second half of our show uh, this morning. Um, we wanted to talk a bit more about the importance of representation. So, of course, Rishi Sunak has made history uh, by becoming the first non-white prime minister um, and of course, uh, we see uh, recently um, before him, uh, we had Liz Truss. She she also made history for having the most ethnically diverse uh, top jobs in, in, in cabinet. Um, and so what we want to discuss this morning is the importance of representation in in the highest echelons of government. What does it mean for those people who are of uh, sort of a a non-majority background and I, uh, I use the term non-majority because I want to expand the scope and context of this to outside of the UK as well potentially right because if we're talking about the context of a Middle Eastern person non, non-majority non could well mean a white person right uh, or, or anything else but but the point here very much being the, these are, uh, are sort of the considerations for, for the residents and and citizens of a country, and how do we feel uh, that they can or cannot integrate in, into their local society in, in the UK, right? So we're talking about people, for example, from African or South American or Asian backgrounds or, or any other backgrounds I've not mentioned here, right? But basically not white English. Um, so what does the appointment of Rishi Sunak um, actually do for us? So we, we've been discussing this here in the studio as well, and uh, and we've discussed sort of uh, sort of touched upon this uh, before the break as well that I called into that radio show a few weeks back saying to me doesn't really make much difference because I'm more interested in in the policies of of a government in representing my interests and if if anyone's been keeping up with various news shows on on other radio stations i think there was there was a man from uh, east anglia who made a bit of news headlines for for his rather racially insensitive comments around why he disagrees with mr sunak's appointment because he he was quite emphatic in that uh, as not a white man he doesn't represent his interests as a white man so um i want to open this up to you guys um and let's discuss really do we feel that this is a positive move for the United Kingdom or, or not? And if not, I'd be very, very interested as to why you feel that way. So, But first of all, let's go over to Hamad. 
Yeah, I just want to give a sort of background to you guys about who Sunak is and what was his campaign. And like you said, should we really be celebrating, as the term goes, brown faces in high places? Uh, does it make a, a um, some sort of significance? Well, it, it, it is significance, but is it meaningful significance to us? Well, I mean, like you said, so Rishi Sunak is quite historically the first um, uh, Asian origin um, a British Prime Minister appointed as Prime Minister, rather. Um, and in his promotional video for his initial leadership campaign, he proudly spoke of being sons of immigrants um, and how he rose up the ranks and he got a job and whatever, whatever. But when you look to his background, you recognize, well, actually, there's already disparity along certain lines um, that some might not be able to feel that he represents them. For example, he went to a particular boarding school at Winchester College, which apparently cost around £46,000 a year to attend. And he's now, um, so he's definitely, he's most definitely the richest MP in Parliament. And his wife has actually a joint asset that's worth much larger uh, than the king, King Charles. So the, their joint network is far, quite extraordinary. I don't think this has ever happened perhaps in history for the prime minister to have um, a network far, um, that far outweighs um, the sovereign power of the country. Um, he's known uh, to uh, have... Um, would be representing um, minority um, and ethnic groups, but like you said, um, Noshi, and I really appreciate you mentioning that it's the majority group rather than a minority group. Um, and there, there, there is this sort of talk about whether he represents Pakistan or whether he represents India, the idea being that it doesn't matter, um, he's just an Asian representation. We have him, we have uh, Suella, we had um, Gwadi Katan, like, like you said before, um, as Chancellor of Exchequer. And I personally think just looking at someone's ethnicity obscures the sort of other barriers that are put in place or the other privileges that one person might have. And for Sunak, it's most definitely his economic and class privilege that he has. There is a counterpoint to say his parents immigrated here and they rose up, up the ranks and they were able to provide for their family in a way that allowed Sunak to attend £46,000 a year school. And so he was very well educated and that put him on a high footing. And apparently that's, you know, sort of just the idea of this American dream or this idea of social mobility that really should be respected by all. But I, 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 I personally think overall, it's about what it's about how he uses his representation and what he represents. He's not really necessarily representing um, Asian ethnicity as much as he, his promotional campaign relied on that. He's um, representing people by his policies that he's enacting and um, the political party that he stands for and the ideology that he espouses. And for me, that's the metric, that's the measure of whether you represent me or not. I don't care who you are, how you are. Um, I, I personally think that a lot of his ideologies, a lot of the ideologies by his political party are actually detrimental to the very uh, ethnic group that he belongs to. I'm not sure what you guys think. So, Hamad, you've gone right into it and uh, talking about um, whether this is really the representation that we are looking for or whether this, this is just for show or this doesn't benefit us at all. I think... One thing that we can agree on that on the day that Rishi Sunak was instated, it was a there was a good feel about it as well. Especially since for a lot of the Indian and Hindu community, it was the day of Diwali, so it was a day of double celebrations. We have, must understand that Rishi Sunak is the first um, 
person of color, person of South Asian background, first Hindu, um, who has been appointed as the prime minister of the country, um, especially around a time where we are seeing a lot more tension coming up um, around the migrant crisis and these kind of things. And one thing that I have noticed is that Rishi Sunak, despite having some of those views, which would appeal to a specific group within the right wing, um, is still criticised by those same people, even though he's trying to appeal to their views simply because of his skin colour. And in that sense that um, he's still on the back foot and he has those disadvantages simply because of skin colour. And I think when we talk about representation, we don't just want to talk about the identity of race. Um, we also want to talk about representation when it comes to genders and also the socioeconomic stat- status and background as well of people and what importance this has. So, Hamad, Hamad you mentioned um, about his socioeconomic background and about the, in a sense, the privileged background that he's had, which does not actually represent the majority of people who represent his race background, right? So in that way, we, or I'd say myself even including, or other people of a color background, struggle to see themselves in Rishi. Um, The only similarity they see is the color of the skin. But I'd like to also go into that, uh, the importance of the color of um, representation of race when it comes to not just politics, but also media, film, and all those things. And in recent years, we've really, really seen a push towards this. Um, Especially, I think one example is uh, the Marvel movies where they've had the first full black um, cast. Uh, they had Miss Marvel, first Asian superhero, and they also take up a lot of um, importance on having women leads as well as characters as superheroes, simply because of the representation this brings. But politics and media are definitely more important since these affect our real-life issues. And the importance of representation in these things is that it gives the accurate image and view of a group of people. We don't want someone who's not from our background, who does not look like us, to come on and be like, these people are like this, or these people like to do this, or these people like to do that. When in reality, we don't feel that we, we fully understand that or we relate to that. So the importance of authentic representation is to break barriers. We want Rishi Sunak to go up there and really show through his actions what it means to be a person of South Asian background, to be a Hindu, what are his values and his moral traditions. Because at the end of the day, I personally believe that the impact that my actions are going to have on people uh, will be much greater than my words. That's why you need to get to the positions in certain in society where you can actually show an example to people or what it means for me personally being a Muslim, what it means to really be a Muslim and set a good example to remove those misconceptions. So first of all, you need the representation for breaking down barriers um, and also making role models from people from Rishi's background. That's also important. But Hamad, as you mentioned, we fail to see that being shown within Rishi himself. Yeah, I mean, you just reminded me about, you know, we can even talk about like the benefits of representation, right? And I was not necessarily, a bi- I didn't buy into the idea of representation. I remember, and it's funny because he talked about, um, I don't think, like the Marvel characters and particularly Black Panther. 
I think when it came out in 2018 and it was this idea of it's the first male black lead and all, all black cast and it was all this great furor and then it went on to become like a billion uh, dollar revenue for, for Marvel and it was like, oh, this is amazing, this is the success that we can have across this field. I didn't buy into that. And I remember so vividly at the time just questioning the notion of um, representation until, and I, th- th- this was literally on the way, I was going to a public debate um, within, in central London and Mehdi Hassan, who's a Muslim journalist, who's now in the US, he was in attendance there. And I didn't notice, I was feeling these things until right at the end of the debate when I watched him completely conquer the entire debate, dominate the entire room and have such good command of knowledge and um, of, of his own arguments that he really captured the entire room in his presence. And it was just quite extraordinary for me as a Muslim man, a young Muslim man, to see admiration, respect um, for another Muslim man who's quite literally on stage under the light for his abilities. And I'd never seen that sort of celebration before. I really hadn't. And it, it was on that day, it really clicked to me because that, that is the purpose of representation. That is why we care so much and drum up about why representation matters. You know, we see pictures of, you know, like young girls. There was that young girl who looked at Michelle Obama's portrait within um, one of the governmental buildings. And it's, it's this idea of saying, despite or in spite of the barriers that are put, put in place before me, which in itself is wrong, I can still achieve and I can still overcome and I can still um, actualize myself in whatever capacity I can. So I do, I do agree, representation incredibly important. I had this visceral sort of personal experience with it myself. Does Rishi Sunak and does anyone within the political cabinet represent that for anyone? I, that, that's another question that I think, you know, for me, Peyton needs the answer to know. Zakharov, thank you. I think that's a really important point, and it kind of leads me to the point that I was thinking of earlier, which is representation, why really does it matter so much, you know? And I think there's two parts of it. There's first part being, you know, why does it matter so much? And second of all, is Rishi Sunak and are these representations, are they authentic and are they positive? So taking the first point, I think there's two main ways in which I find the benefits of positive media representation. So the first point is that for people that idealise idealize and look up to, you know, certain public figures, be it on the TV, entertainment industry, the political uh, and certainly the political environment, these representation matters because for them it's a way to relate and it's a way to build self-esteem and kind of establish support and establish the idea in the minds of a young child or a young teenager, adolescent, that they can be that person. So, for example, growing up, I used to watch Suits, I used to watch House, I used to watch, uh, you know, quite a few Grey's Anatomy and so on and so forth. There wasn't really representation there. But I remember coming across uh, a documentary, um, you know, focusing on the work of the charity called Humanity First in uh, Pakistan and how they would help with the floods then, how they would help with water wells and building water and so on and so forth. And suddenly I could, you know, something clicked in my head and, I, you know, I really for the first time thought, I could be that person. I could be that person who's going out there, saying up medical camps, saying up eye clinics, and, you know, helping these people because these people, first of all, at the very basic level, they look like me. They come from a similar, similar background to me. They can be me. That could be me. Whereas when I was watching Grey's Anatomy and I was watching Suits, you know, these kind of white male people in power, they I just didn't relate. It was a, it was a more of an entertainment thing. It was more of a, this is what some people do in the, in, in the world and this can never be me almost. 
And so seeing that representation was almost inspiring in a sense because it made me realise that there was a way to achieve this, there's a way that that could be me. So that was one positive way of you know media representation. The second of all, the second thing as well is that breaking down stereotypes is, is quite important. What positive media representation does is that, again, it breaks down that stereotype that, for example, I had, that certain people can do certain things but I can't. And it breaks down stereotypes in other people's minds that, you know, people can do certain jobs, you know, and which they should be able to do, but there's not really been those kind of people doing that. For example, you know, it's a very common stereotype, a very common thing that female doctors or female medical students are often referred to as nurses in, in medical school. Um, oftentimes there's been incidents with my colleagues where, you know, a male third year, second year medical student is called doctor and there's about three female, you know, doctors sitting nearby and they all be called nurse, for example. And the patient will almost kind of, uh, will speak to doc. Would prefer to speak to the male uh, medical student and prefer to take his advice rather than those of of the female doctors. It's almost like an inherent, almost like a subconscious thing. And the reason for that is that because a uh, one reason for that could be is that we have that stereotype of a male doctor, uh, you know, being in charge of healthcare, being in charge of decisions, and you know, knowing everything and so on and so forth. And that is almost ingrained in in patients and older patients and so on and so forth. And so seeing representations of female doctors and. Uh, you know, female professors and so on and so forth, is breaking that stereotype and breaking those boundaries and lessening the instances of, of you know, that kind of incident occurring where a male medical student is given priority over a female doctor simply because of his gender. Um, so that was, you know, two ways in which I think positive media representation can really make a difference. But really the question we're addressing today, I think, is that whether Rishi Sunak is an authentic representation of, you know, people from BAME communities is he an authentic representation from people from South East Asian backgrounds can relate to? And is he someone that we should look up to? Is he someone that we can look up to? And, you know, is this something that is positive? Yeah, that's quite an interesting point we've made there because I've been thinking about what does this mean to me, right? So I come from a South Asian background. I've got brown skin, just like the Prime Minister, right? Um, and I was reading a tweet. Now, I can't exactly read that tweet live on air uh, due to the way it was worded, um, but the gist of, of this person's sort of uh, message very much was that while he was happy that we've got a, a brown person uh, in the top job in Downing Street, he he was, he was asking why, why Rishi Sunak, because... And and I'm going to have to probably fill in at this point because he didn't go on to elaborate. But my my thinking is that his, his feeling was that Mr. Sunak does not represent him. Now, we've already touched upon Mr. Sunak's immense level of wealth, right? Thereby already he's he's gone and effectively uh, sort of disassociated him with the vast majority of the people in this country, let alone those from ethnic minorities. Um, but from my point of view and and I may well be looking into something that that this person was not thinking but from my point of view it's a case of well given sort of the political climate in in our country at this time I think Mr Sunak's taken on the top job uh, at a time where really is very much a poison chalice there is no winning in this situation right the Bank of England just a couple of days ago has announced that we are about to go into a two-year recession we're probably already in it and this will probably be the longest uh, recession in UK history right recessions favor nobody regardless of where on the political spectrum you lie and also regardless of whether you were uh, part of the reasons for it happening in the first place or not right in this case it's quite evident that with 
with sort of the global financial situation, uh, there are many factors outside of the UK influencing this current turmoil, um, but as well as certain political decisions of which Mr Sunak is partly responsible from his time as Chancellor of the Exchequer and under sort of Mr Mr John, uh, Johnson's tenure. Um, but really bringing it back to, to this idea of representation, the idea that what Mr. Sunak is going to have to do in order to, to try and keep this ship afloat during these financially uncertain times, in his own words, is going to be unpopular, it is going to be painful, right? So my thinking is, is this not just a poison chalice to take up? Now, people like Jeremy Hunt have considerable favour within the Conservative Party, and my thinking is Mr. Hunt chose not to run purely because he know this is a catch-22 scenario. You, There is no winning. There is no getting out of this and having any political favour left whatsoever. And to be fair, it would have been the same even if we'd had a general election, had it swung to Labour. Labour would have taken the full brunt of, of the blame for any decisions they would have had to take to get through the, these next couple of years. Um, at which point, probably the following election after that would have swung straight back to the Tories again. The point being, really, that does Mr. Sunak's appointment potentially risk, longer term, us actually moving backwards rather than forwards? Because people who already have prejudice in their minds uh, against Mr. Sunak's appointment, and I'm going to be quite blunt about this because of the colour of his skin, right? Not looking at his qualifications. And, and look, I'm personally not a fan of of conservative politics. I'm not a fan of Mr. Sunak uh, in general, but I, I will very much give him credit for what I think he, he is worth in that I, I do think he is our best spoken prime minister in quite some time. He speaks very, very professionally, very sort of uh, calmly, and I think he does have a reassuring voice, which is exactly what the country needs at this time, right? After the last couple of years of, of Boris Johnson trying to just do whatever he wanted and hoping it would work out, Miss Truss, who was a series of sound bites about how she's capping energy bills, Mr. Sunak does sound like a voice of reason. I don't necessarily agree with his politics, but there we go. Um, so he's he's a good person, I think, for the party. But the risk is, with what he's about to do, I think he's about to just basically cut the tires for everyone uh, who looks like him, or or in in other words, is a non-white person from having a senior political role, um, perhaps for a generation, because what's going to happen is going to be pinned on him personally, not a result of the over overarching circumstances that, let's be real, m pretty much any prime minister is going to have to take over the coming weeks and months. But I think, the Green, you've got a point. That's really, really interesting you say that. And it immediately brought me back to the Euro 2020 final, England versus Italy, penalty shootout, and the people who missed in, in the pen shootout, Saka and Rashford, and the amount of racial abuse they got. And again, before the tournament, there was all this talk about Black Lives Matter and how there was so much racial kind of uh, diversity within the England squad. You had South, you had a, you had Saka, you had Rashford, you had Sterling, you had all these great, amazing players, Trent, Rhys James, so on and so forth. And how you know it's great that the England squad was diverse and so on and so forth. But as soon as the focus turned into, you know, what happened in the match and how they missed the penalty shootout and so on and so forth. The amount of racial slurs they got and the hatred they got, just, you know, we just saw how the, the, a lot of the country just turned against them. And a lot of that hatred was, again, focused on the fact of the character that they were, you know, of a different race to them, they were a different skin colour to them. And I, I see your point now a lot more clearly because when I think that 
like you said, the first thing is the catch twenty two situation. It's it doesn't doesn't seem to be a positive way out of this. And so if we then do assume take a pessimistic route where we assume that, you know, mistakes will be made, the economy might might go worse and so on and so forth, then all this talk about Rishi Sunak being uh, you know, a person of, of colour and from a from a less majority background, will that then mean that the blame will shift not only to him but also to people of his of his colour and so on and so forth? And I think it's a really really good uh, you know point to make. And then that goes into negative media representation and what that means to us. As I was saying earlier, I gave some examples of what positive media representation can do, but I don't wish to dwell on the thing. I don't hate to think of what negative media representation will mean. And again, it does worry me, like you said, that. If we are placing so much emphasis on the fact that this is our first brown prime minister, then what happens when things go wrong? What happens when that prime minister make might may make mistakes or people turn against him? And we've tied his identity so heavily towards his race and towards his culture that what then happens when things go wrong? I think that that has made me reflect as well. How you used the example of the uh, Euro twenty twenty and uh, how potentially the color of the skin could turn you into the scapegoat to turn you into the reason, the blame for things going wrong. And uh, Nash, you also mentioned good points about how it definitely feels that Rishi is someone who has the ability, at least, to lead from the way he speaks. And uh, even if we talk about his background, in terms of his background in economics, his professional credentials, etc., this is definitely someone... We needed someone from that background currently in our leading positions simply because of our financial and economic situation that is happening right now. So I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past Rishi that in, a, in some sense he also deserves it if we compare him to the rest of the Tory leadership and the party right now. And I definitely think from what we've seen from Liz Trust that he should have probably come in in her place initially in the first place anyways. So in that way, I'm going to give him kudos and I'm going to say, um, like you said, when I saw a person of my skin colour walking to the 10 Downing Street, being the leader, it was a feel-good moment. Even though I already knew about Rishi's policies and stuff beforehand, I still thought that I could empathise with this person simply because I know what it feels like to be discriminated for your skin colour and uh, I knew what it felt like for the hate he was receiving for that purpose as well. So, but... Obviously, me being someone who also knows all his policies, who understands what's happening, it's difficult for me to feel that uh, affinity towards him. However, a person of a younger generation, person who's still in primary school, secondary school, who does not know that much about politics, who does not know about what uh, Rishi Sunak is trying to put into play into country and what effect it will have on us, they would still feel that Rishi would be a role model to them and they'd be inspired by that. Hamad mentioned a moment earlier how young children were inspired by the representation that they were seeing on the TVs and the films. Recently, there was a Disney movie that's coming out soon, Ariel, and there was a big announcement about how the lead cast, the um, the act- actor playing Ariel, is actually a person of colour. And this was highly um, criticised simply because the person playing Ariel in the cartoons is a white person. And uh, the big issue was that this was really showing the racism that is inherited or is lazing people because why is there an issue in a fictional character being played by a certain person of colour? Why is it such an issue that now you, you have a problem with someone who's slightly coloured, who's mixed, playing that character? And I think in that way, Rishi can be a source of inspiration and role model for people who now can see that, okay, if you're a person of colour who's at the highest position in the country, I can get some of that as well. 
and I would like to get someone like that. So I think for the young generation, it's a good thing. Um, it's a positive thing for them. But the downside for us who know what's going on is that we want accurate representation. For example, when the government's doing a survey, a poll, a census, it takes a sample of people. Within that sample of people, it tries to get representations across all ethnic backgrounds, religions, etc., to accurately represent the general population. However, it wouldn't make sense if we are trying to get a certain person of colour who has opposing views to what the general mass population is off of that ethnic background. And then that's what a lot of people feel about Rishi as well, where they aren't able to feel that representation. And if we don't get the accurate representation, we won't be able to break down those barriers because what we want from someone from our background being in that position is being able to bridge the gaps or the bridges between us, person of colour, person of Pakistani background, with let's say with the Indians, let's say with the, um, a person who's native, who's to this country, person who's come from Africa, etc. We won't feel that's taking place then. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say also, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, this idea of accurate representation, it, that, that, that's really what matters. I really care more about someone who's going to espouse for material financial equality within the lowest of the society or perhaps, um, you know, standing for a greater sort of social and political justice. I don't necessarily care about someone's race or ethnicity. I just wanted to bring it back to the green, what you were saying about um, football players and their race, and it reminded me of Trevor Noah's commentary um, a few years back on um, the, the I, th I think they were Congolese, or I, th I, th I think they were Congolese um, players within the French football team, um, who, are, who are of black skin, obviously, and who actually weren't considered to be French. People were saying that, you know, these aren't French, uh, these aren't French um, ethnic um, people, so why are they representing our country? And then it transpired that one of, um, just within that week of this commentary and this whole furor, was that there was another black man in France who actually managed to save a child falling from a burning building by climbing up. And then he got applauded for it and lauded for it, and I, everyone was saying, this is good French citizenship. And this idea of actually trying to have to prove yourself your worth to a society that would otherwise disavow you and not celebrate you for your contribution. And I think it's the same thing with Rishi. It's like, why should we celebrate someone and, you know, laud him for something that he doesn't have control over his own skin colour? He was born into his ethnicity. Um, usually, I mean, you, we'd want to rep celebrate any sort of representation if it's positive, but it's the way that he's using his representation purposefully to actually get some political support and then using that political power that he gets from his support to then further, uh, uh, further aims that are indirectly antithetical to any sort of representation or further representation. For example, we talked about him shielding Suella, um, the current Home Secretary, whose own policies are to remove um, and remove eases for migration and uh, asylum seekers within this country. So it's really about what does representation with Rishi Sunak actually mean? And it's not, I, I, I mean, we've said this in different ways, but it's completely antithetical to what we'd want to be celebrating representation for. Yeah, and again, it brings it back to a point now. Having I was having to think about this, that why is it that we are associating, you know, Rishi Sunak and all these media representations, you know, with their race, with their income, and so on and so forth? And really, there are people out there in the world who say that, 
you know, we should not define people by their colour of their skin. You know, there's certain people out there who say that, you know, we do not see colour. For example, there is that argument out there in the world that why are we judging people or why are we linking people or associating with people purely based on the race of their skin? The argument is that if we are all equal, then the colour of our skin doesn't matter. If we are all equal, if we are all human beings, brothers and sisters, then why does our culture matter? Why are the boundaries set by us based on national borders, for example, or, or skin colour that, you know, mean that we categorise ourselves and make ourselves fit into different categories and we classify ourselves into these different uh, categories. I think that's a good point to make because if we, to take that stance, to take that viewpoint, that would mean that, you know, no longer we would then see Rishi Sunak as a brown prime minister, we would assess his competency and we either feel associated towards him or attracted towards him based on his political, political competency rather than the colour of his skin or how rich he is and so on and so forth. That is one argument out there saying that for true equality to exist, then we should kind of disregard the colour of his skin, we should disregard his income, disregard that background and base him just simply on his experience and skills. But actually, when I kind of thought about this viewpoint when I was first introduced to it, I kind of disagreed with this and I thought, you know what, this doesn't make sense because like it or not, and this is something that perhaps some people might find it hard to get used to, there is inequality in the world, there is inequity in the world, you know. Now we can talk about feminism and so on and so forth and how men and women have different roles and how some people argue that they have the same roles, have the same um, roles in society or want to play the same role in society and what that means. But we have to come to terms that, you know, there are inequalities and there are, you know, certain inequities in the world which are fundamental realities and we can't change that. And so if we accept that there are inequalities in the world, then we have to accept that there will be people that will be judged based on the, on the colour of their skin based on their income, based on other socioeconomic factors, their location, their age, their gender, and so on and so forth. And that comes to the reason why, if there are certain inequities and inequalities in the world that are fundamental and that exist and, you know, we have to live with them, why? what can we do about other inequalities in the world and how can we change them in order to make the world more fair, a fairer place for everyone? And the difference between inequality and inequity, the way I see it, is that it's, you know, I saw a picture once, and there was it was a picture of kind of three people, you know, looking over a fence and it was a tall man and then a slightly short man and then a small child. Um, a tall man and a medium-sized woman and then a small child all looking over a fence. And the man could see over the fence quite easily, the woman and the child couldn't. And so, so how someone explained it to us that equality is giving them all the same block to stand on. That's fine, but all that changes is that the man can still see, the block is still not high enough for the woman to see over the fence and the child still can't see. And true equality, true equality, that was, I think, I believe that was equality. But true equity would mean giving the man one block, giving the woman two blocks, giving the child three blocks. So they're now all at the same level and they think they'll all see. And so that difference really between equity and equality is, is, you know, it's something that I think, you know, we can speak about perhaps. And, you know, this, this problem of inequality in the world and inequity in the world and how can we solve that? I think that's a good uh, topic that we can kind of talk about next. The thing is, I agree with what you mentioned there is that what you spoke about an ideal world would be perfect right um, about how we shouldn't have to look at someone's skin colour or their background to determine whether there will be a good choice for us or not we should look at their credentials their um, educational accreditations their um, knowledge etc their capabilities but we are living in a society where this is not possible and the reason why we are having that discussion right now about Rishi Sunak's background and the um, representation this brings us is because of that reason that we still have a long way to go i don't know if you guys heard about the recent news of um, what happened in the houses of parliament in france 
where one of the um, MPs from the lower houses got up and he was talking about the migrant crisis and someone from the opposing party literally told him in front of everyone, go back to Africa in the Houses of Parliament of France where it shows how normalised now these visa points are happening where you can publicly, in the highest um, kind of institutions in the country, can stand up and just say these things. And uh, supposedly the only thing that MP got was a two-week ban from the Houses of Parliament and his salary was reduced for two months. That's it. And he's going to be back on the job. It's upsetting to see that a lot of these people are getting support now. Um, So we do have to talk about the representation and the importance of bringing people in from all walks of life. And I think one thing I just remembered as well, in general, most companies now, um, and there's been a lot of drive behind this, behind diversity and inclusion, they have quotas when they have to represent and bring people in. And uh, this means that, um, this means that they have to bring in certain people of uh, a certain background, let's say a person of an Asian background, they also need to hire more women as well, so get more gender equality within the workspace, simply because of the fact that benefit this brings is that new ideas come in. Someone from a different ethnic background has a different way of thinking, can bring new benefits to the business, and sharing these ideas will overall increase the productivity and efficiency of that business as well. In the same sense, we also need that at our higher stages in the media, in the politics as well, because that way we represent the whole population and we can really take account of what will benefit everyone rather than a specific class of people. Yeah, so I, I think what I want to sort of add on to that really is you, you're, you're completely right in that diversity helps us, but I'm going to argue quotas don't because quotas mean we're, we're filling roles with people because they feel, uh, they fulfil particular characteristics characteristic requirement whether that be they're a woman or they come from a particular racial background or for example um, they have any other sort of uh, characteristics that that may be a protected class right Um, I, I, I think personally I'm against quotas for that reason because particularly if you are one of those people who are filling a quota after a while, I think there's a very real chance that you feel you're there, not because you actually deserve that role, whatever it is, but rather you're there to make your employer, your university or whatever that body is look better for saying, actually, do you know what? We've got quite a diverse body of people here. Um, it doesn't necessarily benefit that group of people. Um, and I think for people, this isn't a pride thing uh, for, for that person who's received the job or the studentship or whatever it is, right? But it's a case of actually, am I only here to make them look good rather than for my own benefit? Now, instead, we should be looking at having a sort of representation in our society because of uh, sort of people's skills and being being actually worthy of, of whatever role or title they get. So... For example, we see different people of different backgrounds in various elements of, of, of public life, right? So if we look at politics, for example, very, very famous story of Nelson Mandela, right? In that, ironically, uh, uh, the black African people in South Africa were the majority people as opposed to the white uh, uh, colonizers uh, from Europe. And yet Nelson Mandela and obviously his his uh, sort of long struggle to, to gain equitable status uh, for the the native peoples in his country. Um, that was a true example of of bringing diversity as in, I guess, at that point, after so many years of, of colonization, 
it almost is that was a particularly difficult one in terms of and I don't think there was any perfect way to do it but the fact is they could have kicked all the all the white people out but they didn't because there there was still value in having everyone there because those pe- just like the people today have nothing to do with the colonization of hundreds of years ago but at the same time um, we can't penalize a particular person because their five generations up used to own a plantation necessarily but they I would argue have a moral responsibility to do more than the average person at that point to make amends to to those people who have suffered due to things like um, slavery. We can also look at other things such as science, right? At the beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic, the first uh, vaccine that became available was by that company BioNTech. So that's based in Germany. And that was a husband and wife team of Turkish immigrants to Germany, right? These were the world's first people to develop a vaccine. And I know they received some media uh, traction for obviously their racial background, right? But again, I think that's a great example of if we if we sort of restrict ourselves to having people of only certain colours, i.e. those who look like us or of certain uh, other characteristics because they feel like us, right? I think we're missing out on a huge number of talent. And we move over to sport, for example. Lewis Hamilton in Formula One. He is the most successful driver of all time. As in, it's not even close, right? There is, as in, there's a lot of talk about Max Verstappen might be a better driver than him. I, I personally disagree. I'm a Lewis fan. I'm happy to disclose that, right? But if we look statistically, Lewis is the greatest driver of all time, right? He's better than Michael Schumacher. And that's something that nobody thought anyone was going to see yet, let alone just a handful of years uh, after Schumacher left the sport. And we see here, Lewis, sadly, I would say, is still the only black driver on the grid, right? There's 20-odd drivers uh, in a Formula One grid. Um, And it's a case of Formula One, I would argue, is a very, very elitist sport. It requires a huge amount of money just to get a a, a seat in a car there. Uh, what, What he's done... I think obviously is a great inspiration to many many non-white children across the UK and across the world right however um, there is obviously more that could be done in his sport and even to this day he faces abuse because of the color of his skin right a recent example of that was at the Dutch Grand Prix just a a few months ago and there was all sorts of booing for him I I, I get it he's not the home favorite that's that's Verstappen as, as the local kid but that sort of thing is unacceptable. Sport should be a celebration of actually here, you know what, we've got the greatest athletes in whatever particular sport, whether it's football, whether it's cricket, whether it's Formula One, whatever it might be. And actually the audiences should be there to just enjoy a spectacle of actually here to, to watch a sport that they enjoy. Seeing people at the top of their game competing against each other um, uh, for the benefit of sport and also for people's entertainment but instead we see the ugliness of racism rear its head over there as well um, but I guess to, to, to sort of bring it back to what we've been discussing and, and I guess those are just a handful of examples diversity and inclusiveness benefits us all because like Rahan's mentioned by having that wider uh, set of viewpoints in a workplace for example those are additional perspectives that we can look at right so that's and that's also worth considering that whether you're a doctor or whether you work in uh, HR or you work in any job really you have to consider the impacts of what you're doing now someone who potentially comes from a financially very secure background may see oh we're doing something then that works very well whereas someone potentially who's has been financially in a very difficult situation in the past might be able to empathize with people who may actually 
receive the results of that work differently. And actually, it's great to have that perspective. Um, but I think, uh, Rahan, uh, and sorry, uh, Dagreem, you've got something to add on to that. Yeah, again, continuing your point, one thing Rohan mentioned, and you just mentioned as well, is that in diversity and inclusiveness, you know, we should always look for positive examples of that. And I, I think Rohan mentioned as well that we don't simply want to fill quotas, like like you said, Nosha, as well. We don't just want to pay lip service to diversity, because diversity does bring in new ideas and so on and so forth. There's got to be a positive impact it brings. Diversity for the sake of diversity is it's almost useless because, like I said, it's just filling in a quota. And in fact, that kind of the opposite effect it can make this person who you brought in, for example, feel less themselves and feel they've been brought in just for one job purpose and one purpose only. But examples of positive um, diversity fulfillment, I think it's really good to highlight this stuff, is I remember during the start of the COVID pandemic, there was a um, quite a lot of people were talking about this, the fact that in a lot of dermatology textbooks, there was not a lot of uh, black skin representation. And one of the symptoms of COVID at the start was skins and certain rashes on the skin and toes that were an early sign of uh, early sign of COVID nineteen. And so there was a professor, a dermatologist uh, called Jen Lester, who was having a look at this, and she found out that there was barely any representation of how rashes looked on black skin compared to white skin. And thinking at the time, I thought about all that I actually never seen, you know, a person of color or a black skin in any textbook, medical textbooks. When I was learning anatomy, for example, skin was always white. And now that actually has medical ramifications because a rash will look very different or will present very differently on black skin compared to white skin. And, you know, you might it might be easy to dismiss it as, a not, as a not being there, for example, and, you know, mispruritic rashes and non-blanching rashes and so on and so forth. It's just simply because you can't see them because you're not used to seeing them on uh, black skin compared to pale white skin. And so that was an example where that diversity was harming us. And having... You know, having made those revisions and introducing black skin to, into textbooks, which I've seen very recently as well, um, in, in from Kings, is one example where that diversity has had a really, really positive impact, and that that directly translates to saving lives and making healthcare more efficient, catching disease earlier, making treatments better for patients, and that is, you know, you know, a direct example of why diversity is so important, why inclusiveness is so important, and why positive diversity can make such a big impact. And so again, it brings it back to that thing, and I think it brings it back to my original point that there's inequality in the world, but a positive mindset, and a mindset where you're not judging people based on their race, you're judging people based on competency, but at the same time, you understand the value of diversity, and what that adds to the workplace, is just a such, a, such a crucial thing to have. Yeah, um, I agree with both the points you're making there, and uh, Nasha, I believe the reason why we are ha- people are highlighting people's ethnic backgrounds when it comes to um, certain inventions or achievements being made and even people we do that as well when we see someone of our skin color doing a certain thing we all you know post on our social media look this person did this this person did that and the reason why that happens for example the vaccine being a prime example most recently is because there is this notion that uh, people from a certain part of the world let's say the west are able to find all the solutions to all the problems of the people from another part of the world the east or so the third world countries and what they're trying to highlight is that this is not necessarily the case. Um, and we are trying to highlight, even on the Voice of Islam radio show, that if you look at the, let's say, Islamic history and the golden age of Islam, it was actually Muslim world and Eastern countries that brought the West out of the Middle Ages. And that is what we want to highlight and what people in this day and age have forgotten. And that brings us perfectly um, onto the last part of the show as well. 
where we want to kind of discuss what are potentially the solutions to these things we're discussing. So what I've noticed are that there was a couple of themes which were race, equity and justice that we've kind of discussed, which encompass encompass all the things that we are currently speaking about. And Islam really, really does provide the solutions to this, you know. Um, and we look at the founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who discussed that a Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab, neither does a black have any superiority over white, and vice versa, simply because he wanted to highlight the same thing, that we shouldn't judge a person or um, assess a person based on their skin colour, because this does not bring anyone any superiority, it does not bring you a specific set of skills, but he said the only differences that we have, and this is also mentioned in the Holy Quran, it is of piety and righteousness. Now, within piety, righteousness also includes our conduct, our morals, and all these things. So this is what differentiates one person from another. And what we don't want Rishi Sunak to do, well, according to Islam, the right thing wouldn't be that Rishi Sunak now owes something to the people of his community and he needs to show, show them favour. What he needs to do, which comes under the system of absolute justice, is that he needs to show equity to all walks of life, all people, whether they are from a low social economic status or whether they're rich as well. He needs to put in systems and policies in place which benefit all and does not benefit one over the other. Absolutely. And and it, this sort of comes back to, to that idea that in politics, and again, I, I fully appreciate not everyone will agree with this point, but, but my opinion stands on this, that the colour of leading politicians makes absolutely no, no jot of a difference to me because it's their policies in terms of how they represent me as, as a person, how they represent my family's interests, how they represent the interests of, of the people in my town and my country, right? Because, as you mentioned, um, we are a, a massive, massive sort of melting pot of cultures in the UK. We we arguably, and look, I don't, I don't think it's even an arguable thing. I think the UK probably is the greatest country on earth, not just because of its diversity, but for all its flaws, right, we still give chances to people who are of non-white backgrounds, right? You see people of non-white backgrounds and also non-men, right, having the top job in companies, in politics, right? Um, there are not so many other places in the world where the, those opportunities, I, I think they could be easier found still in the UK, but compared to many other places, I still think we provide more opportunity and more ease of access compared to other places. Though we never should forget that there is still far more that this country should be doing. Um, and, and sort of with that, really, I think, yeah, we've we've got a good system running, but at the same time, it's very much upon uh, any prime minister, regardless of race, creed or, or religion or any other factor, to, to always remember the interests of all people. We were a very wealthy country, but sadly we have immense levels of poverty here as well. And and with that, I think we, we ought to be doing better, as in we cannot say we're a G7 nation, and yet we've got people who are sadly having to choose between keeping their children warm or keeping their children fed, meanwhile not eating themselves, right? That, that, that can't be right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the key takeaway that I really got from this was that it's important to recognise diversity and recognise the value of diversity and what that brings to the table. But at the same time, you know, we shouldn't be placing ineffective and useless bias towards diversity and, you know, not ranking people based on their competency instead. And so really, it's about, to summarise it, you know, you know, it's about valuing people based on their competency, their experience, their background. And 
and then in the Islamic term, viewpoint as well, on the piety as well. One example that yeah, I know you mentioned the final speech, but one example that came to mind is that, for example, the Imam, when praying, um, is based on, for example, who is the most learned spiritually. Now, there's no mention of race there. There's no mention of income there. When you stand in line to pray behind an Imam, everybody's equal, whether rich, poor, black, white, so on and so forth. The only differentiating factor, um, not between the, prayer, the the people that are praying, but in the, between the Imam and the prayers and the and the the congregation members, is the fact that the Imam is the one who is more spiritually learned. And so we, again, we see the importance of education and competency come to the fore again. And so Islam, again, from the very outset, from the very beginning, shows us in these small steps how you know we should differentiate between different people, how we should address inequalities in the world, and how we should you know choose people to be in positions of power over us. And I think that's just a really beautiful uh, way of uh, showing that. Yeah, exactly for that, Takrim. And so I guess we're now we're coming up to to midday. So so really, just to wrap up our show. Um, First of all, thank you to all of our listeners who've joined us this morning. Um, so this morning we've been discussing uh, initially a range of news stories covering things like the Bank of Interest, uh, Bank of England's uh, interest rate hikes. Uh, we've talked also about various news stories regarding the Home Secretary and, and data privacy uh, issues. And finally, for the last hour, we've been discussing the importance of uh sort of inclusion and diversity and, and how it really benefits all of us and, and whether or not the appointment of Rishi Sunak as, as, as the UK's Prime Minister is beneficial to, to people from ethnic minorities. So we've had a great discussion um, and we'll be back with you next week uh, on Voice of Islam for Saturday Morning Live.